We, we were too busy going to see Wiener. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. There are great songs about Texas and artists that are quintessentially Texan, but there are also many great and popular artists that people may not immediately associate with Texas. This week, we're going to look at more not-so-classic Texas hits in our genre-bending Texas Rock Part 2. But first, what is a Texas roadside attraction that you've always wanted to visit? Well, the top of my bucket list is the Inner Space Cavern, which is just between uh, Georgetown and Temple, Texas, north of Austin. Um, And it's a shame I've never been there because it's literally seven, eight minutes away from where my parents live. And And they've lived there for the last, you know, decade and a half. So it's still on my bucket list. And we did a show about it, too. <laughs> it's true. Well, I don't like all this bucket list talk because uh, I feel pretty healthy right now. And, uh, you know, I'm avoiding sharp objects and any kind of dangerous extreme sports. So, uh, But I would like to visit the Texas Prison Museum, which I oftentimes see as I uh, drive through Huntsville. So you see Big Sam, you see the big prison, and then you see the Texas Prison Museum. And it's right off the road, so it, it, there's no reason I shouldn't stop, except for the fact that I have places to go. I do believe they do have a Sparky on display there. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Texas Prison Museum is also on mil- my list, as well as uh, the the uh, the Texas Ranger Museum in Waco. I believe that is mm. very near the freeway as well. But in there, yes. What I'm going to say for the one that I've always wanted to visit, and maybe never will, but it. Because it's, in my mind, it, it's a much bigger deal than it is in reality, I'm sure, is uh, driving down 35 uh, and you come to that sign that says Carl's Corner. Um, I don't know what Carl's Corner is. It's probably just a big truck stop. Um, but in my mind, it's something like the uh, the Principality of Sealand off the shore of uh, England where it's just uh, – I imagine it this little place that some guy named Carl carved out into his own little kingdom along the freeway in Texas. And uh, that's what it's always going to be in my mind. You know, that is essentially what it is. And in a little further fact, there was a few years there where uh, Willie Nelson bought it and was going to renovate the place. And uh, it was supposed to be the home base for Bio Willie Biodiesel. But yeah, uh, I remember something about that. But uh, That fitted out and uh, they actually sold the place off. But uh, it's back yeah, to Carl's yeah. Corner now. I, I maintain that the, the mystery in my mind is always going to be better than uh, whatever the reality is. So. Well, I, I won't diminish your reality in by telling you it's just a big truck stop. <laughs> well, then just put Bucky's on the list and let's move on. <laughs> in our last Texas Rock episode, we talked about several artists and musicians who had huge hits or were seminal groundbreaking performers, but who really don't stand out as being associated with Texas. This week, we're going back to the well to look at some more artists that we missed in our previous discussion. Remember, these are performers from Texas, but you don't think of them as being from or maybe even realize they are from the Lone Star State. So the exemplar for this episode is this song, and it's Joe Tex, I Gotcha. Now we're going to have to give credit where credit is due. Our friends over at the Beyond Yacht Podcast have done a segment that they've called 50 States and 50 Podcasts on their show, and they featured a signature artist on each episode from each state. Now for the Texas episode, they pulled out this signature R&B and funk legend, Joe Tex. And we've got to admit, despite his name, we were a bit surprised by this one. 
I'm not going to put this one on the list because we were stumped on our last episode. It would have been definitely in the top of our list in the last episode if I'd known Joe Tex was actually from Texas. This is a perfect example, though, of Texas rock because this is not a performer or a sound that you associate with Texas. Now, Joe Tex was born Joseph Arrington in the central Texas town of Rogers, and he grew up in the Houston suburb of Baytown. When he was 18 years old, he won a Houston talent show, and he used the $300 in prize money to go to New York City, where he competed in the amateur portion of the famed Apollo Theater. He won four times in a row, and he scored a record contract. Through the late 50s and the early 60s, he recorded and wrote many songs, but without much success. He did establish a reputation on stage as a contemporary of Jackie Wilson, James Brown, and Little Richard. Now, his mic tricks and his dance moves were revolutionary for the time, and it became a bone of contention that he claimed James Brown ripped off his style. And Little Richard has actually backed him up on that. James Brown and Joe Tex feuded for many years, sometimes even dissing each other on tracks. Tex broke through finally with his first hit, Hold On to What You've Got, and from 1964 to 1980, he charted nearly 30 top 100 hits and had more R&B chart hits than even James Brown did. His biggest hit was this 1971 funk song, I Gotcha, which hit number two and it sold two million copies. And it's probably most famous now for being featured prominently in the movie Reservoir Dogs. He had some other hits, including the song Skinny Legs and All, Loose Caboose, and the wonderfully awful title, Ain't Gonna Bump No More With No Big Fat Woman. And you gotta go watch that video from Soul Train. It's pretty awesome. He retired from music in 1981 to a ranch in Navasota, Texas, and he died in 1982. I gotcha. Uh-huh. Well, you know, this is like that song, again, this is one of those things of you, you don't realize how deep the guy's catalog is. Yeah. Because we're not quite old enough to be like exposed to like that that late 60s early like 80s funk like we we've heard yeah. the songs we don't know the songs but this song uh, especially when it got the revival from uh Quentin Tarantino so good for you yeah. Joe Tex it's, it's a good song and and uh the the feud with him and James Brown was great actually James Brown uh, stole uh Joe Tex's girlfriend who was his backup singer they recorded a song called him out on it and then Joe Tex responded with a song that said, you can keep her. <laughs> so he was, uh, he was pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, he's from Navasota. He lived in Navasota, Texas, and was a big fan of the Houston Oilers before he passed away, right, uh, right after he retired. Well, I can't, uh, I can't get mad at him for that. Yeah. Ten. All right. So on our list for today, coming in at number 10, we've got the Ghetto Boys with Damn It Feels Good to Be a Gangsta. So the last time that we mentioned Houston's rap legends, the Ghetto Boys, as being too difficult to include due to the fact that this is a family-friendly show, um, we had overlooked, or rather, Sean had overlooked, um, one of their most famous songs. It's as much a favorite of nerds as it is of hip-hop fans. So this song came out in 1992, and uh, it was featured in the film Office Space, where Peter, Michael, and Samir take out their vengeance on the constantly jamming printer. They go to it with baseball bats. Classic scene. 
The Ghetto Boys were formed in 1986 in Houston's infamous Fifth Ward neighborhood. Uh, they only released a few albums in the early 1990s with occasional reunions in the 2000s, but their influence on hip-hop is immense. They were profoundly influential in the evolution of rap and hip-hop, being one of the earliest and most extreme, quote, gangster rap groups. They were also considered the first major rap group that came out of the South, changing the East Coast-West Coast paradigm that dominated the scene, and they're credited with inventing horrorcore rap. Yeah, and, and if you were uh, driving a mini truck in the early 1990s in rural Texas, you were either playing third base or you were playing the Ghetto Boys <laughs> with your, yeah, um, your with your through your speakers. Yeah, I've never personally, I've never really listened to Ghetto Boys that much, but I always I knew who they were and I knew other people that knew of them well. And uh, of course, I as I am a nerd that loves Office Space, uh, I knew the song from that movie. So. I am certainly not surprised that the Ghetto Boys are from Texas, but they are definitely not what I would consider a Texas-sounding uh, group. Well, there's no. you, you know this Houston thing. I mean, like they're they're Fifth Ward, and I uh, I do remember at the time. I mean, mine my mind is playing tricks on me. is is a great song. Uh, it's very complex. Like actually, really a strange song because you actually look at the lyrics and it's it's a confused. He's very confused, and he's really con- it's it's pretty good. And the thing about it is, this came out around the same time as NWA's Straight Outta Compton, and and I would argue that it's their their really the Ghetto Boys' breakthrough album is as visceral and powerful uh, an experience as listening to uh, Straight Outta Compton, and it is not radio friendly at all. <laughs> no, it's great, great stuff. This is Albert Collins, and we're talking about Babysitting Blues. Albert Collins was one of the all-time great blues guitarists. He was born in Leona, Texas, but grew up in Marquet and eventually was in Sean's hometown of Normandy before he finally moved to Houston. He took piano lessons when he was young, but he switched to guitar, learning to play with a radically altered tuning, where his guitar was tuned to an open F minor chord, which he played all his life. He spent several years as a teenager going back and forth between Houston and Normandy for work, playing with pickup bands at juke joints and honky-tonks. Throughout the 50s and 60s, he played all over Texas, before finally being discovered by the rock group Canned Heat in 1968. He soon moved to California, was initially successful, but financial problems put him out of music for a few years in the 70s. After he was rediscovered late in 1978, he spent the next several years touring throughout the U.S. and the world as a premier blues and jazz artist. He's probably most famous to non-blues fans uh, for appearing as an unnamed Chicago blues guitarist in the 1987 movie Adventures in Babysitting, telling Elizabeth Shue that, quote, nobody leave this stage without singing the blues. Albert Collins would die of cancer in 1993. Yeah, that, and, so and that I, is not his most famous turn, by the way. Like, well, no. but I think it's probably his most recognizable moment. Uh, yeah, this is Albert Collins. Actually, was a very influential guy. He he actually inspired Robert Cray to become a musician. He inspired C.B. Ray Vaughan and Jimmy Vaughan when they were when they were coming up. So he's he's very very accomplished blues guitarist. Um, I remember him from this movie. Um, obviously, when I was a kid, this was a big movie to, uh, and I remember that scene very well. And then when we moved to Normandy in 1988. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, several of his nephews were going to school at Norman G. High School. So, and they said that he used to make uh, his guitar uh, make swear words. 
I think probably the thing I, I remember most for is he, he was on Live Aid in 85. Uh-huh. And he yeah. appeared with uh, George Thorgan and the Destroyers. So it was like sort of commercially blues-adjacent guy, kind of bar rock guy, brings a blues legend on stage. <laughs> yeah, sort of how nice. it works. Yeah, I, I only know him from uh, Adventures in Babysitting. And, uh, ah, you ruined my point. It's a good song. It's a good song. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, and it, you know, you think this guy's from Chicago. Like, this is a Chicago blues guy. He's from Chicago. But actually, he's from a small town in Central Texas. So, there you go. Lisa Loeb with Stay. So, if you turn on the radio or you switched on MTV in 1994, you could not get away from Dallas native Lisa Loeb, her hit song Stay, or her glasses. Uh, if you, you you remember a very earnest-looking uh, brunette girl with um, horn-rimmed glasses, that was the image of her of Lisa Loeb. Lisa Loeb was born in Maryland, but she was raised in Dallas, and she attended the prestigious Hockaday School, which was an all-girl prep school. She first started performing music at Brown University, and after several years on the East Coast Coffee House and Folk Club circuit, she had her first break thanks to her neighbor, actor Ethan Hawke. It's funny how things work out. He passed along her song, Stay, to director Ben Stiller for their upcoming movie, Reality Bites. The song became a number one hit, along with the movie being a hit. She was the first artist ever to hit number one on the Hot 100 without currently being signed to a major label. Now, she had some other later hits, including Do You Sleep, which was off of that debut album that she did sign. She had some other later hits, including Do You Sleep, which was off of her actual debut album. And the other songs included I Do, but they never had the success of the song Stay. Now, she continued to record albums, and she's had a successful career since recording children's music, voice acting for animation, hosting a cooking show with her then-boyfriend Dweezil Zappa, and uh, most recently launching a line of eyewear and coffee. So you can look like Lisa Loeb as well, like 1994. <laughs> hey, I mean, like... You know, this is a signature Texas podcast. She's got her own signature. Yeah, exactly. we get it. Well, well this song was pretty ubiquitous in 1994. I mean, I mean, it was everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. Well, you know what? Hockaday's a funny thing. Like, uh, you know, it's, it, it may not mean much to people outside of Dallas, but if you're in Dallas, it's it's considered the a who's who of girls prep schools. No, I know, I know, I remember that song, obviously, and uh, it never got old. That would come on MTV and I'd watch it all day long. Did you constantly feel the yearning of that song? I don't know if that's the word for it, <laughs> but uh, I enjoyed the song. Yeah. Seven. seven. All right. Number seven is Drowning Pool with Bodies. Now, <laughs> in direct contrast to the sweet, adorable sounds of Lisa Loeb and her glasses comes another group from Dallas, Drowning Pool. Uh, the pioneering new metal band was founded in 1996, originally as an instrumental group. Uh, vocalist Dave Williams from the town of Princeton, northeast of Dallas, gave the group its distinctive yelling sound. They played at Deep Ellum Rock Clubs and were mentioned by Dallas metal legends Pantera and had their big break in 2001 with the album Sinner, from which Bodies was their biggest rock single. 
Uh, sadly, in 2002, Williams died of an undiagnosed heart condition. The band has continued to record over the past 15 years with a variety of singers, but never achieved the success of their first hit. Um, this is a pretty good song, I have to say. This is a great song if you're like, this is what I think of as like a movie soundtrack song. Or like a movie trailer song is probably better. You yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Like for for like a like an action movie starring um, uh, Vin Diesel or something, right? That yeah yeah, or like a you know, I I, just, I think it's it's been used. I know it's been used in some commercials and some other things. So it's it's a, it's yeah. a pretty ubiquitous song. And then there was also, of course, famously this year um, on <laughs> America's Got Talent, some yeah. old guy came out and became the zeitgeist of a meme when he started trying to yarl out. Uh, Bodies, drowning pools, bodies. Really? Yeah, he was like I, an eighty-four-year-old man. So, uh, just that reminds putting, me of uh, when Pat Boone sang the, the hit metal. Yeah, songs. but this guy really tried to like scream uh, it out. So, just Google the uh, old man bodies. America's Got Talent. And you'll just be like, you'll maybe, get a maybe few. that'll end up in the show notes. Maybe well, be well, the the <laughs> more infamously. More, more infamously recently, this song was in the news because apparently the U.S. military and the intelligence apparatus has been using it as a uh, interrogation tool hmm. uh, for uh, suspected terrorists. Well, and I, I, I was, apologize for I was going that. to uh, say that this is also a very good uh, get angry and break stuff kind of song. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So right if, if you were to, uh, mm-hmm. I was going to say, if you were to swap out a, a song, if you wanted to re, re-score that scene in Office Space, this would not be a, a bad <laughs> substitute. Did, did, did either of you guys ever see these guys in, in Deep Ellum anytime? Unfortunately, when we were no. Unfortunately, no, I, never no, did. I did not. I, I don't think I ever saw them either, and that's, that's what's weird, is we were going down there to Deep Ellum like every weekend, so... I don't know how we missed these guys. I guess it was probably around 98, 99 when they kind of started to break through. Yeah. We, we were too busy going to see Wiener. That's true. We were. We were seeing Wiener. Six, six, six. Number six, the Sir Douglas Quintet. With the song, She's About a Mover. The Sir Douglas Quintet was formed in 1964 in San Antonio by music prodigy Doug Som and his friend keyboardist Augie Myers. The band was a garage rock band that was influenced by local Tejano and Texas German, Czech, and even Polish sounds, as my rock and the blues. But they took the name Sir Douglas Quintet, and I think they were actually the Sir Douglas Arthur Quintet for a while, to appeal to audiences that were British Invasion crazy. She's About a Mover was the first hit, and it has a definitive Tex-Mex sound. It hit number 13 on the Billboard charts. Over the next few years, they dropped all the mop-top antics and adopted a more varied sound, and scored another hit in 1968 with Mendocino. They had another great, they had another great, a really great song uh, called Nuevo Laredo, which I, I truly love. So look it up. Uh, Sam eventually left the group to go solo in 72, and the band broke up in 1973. Now Doug Sam and Augie Myers would continue to perform together often over the next years on their solo albums, and eventually formed the supergroup, the Texas Tornadoes, with Freddie Fender and Flaco Jimenez in 1989. The quintet reunited throughout the 70s, and they even recorded some new albums in the 80s. Unfortunately, we lost Doug Som in 1999. Now, a funny story to this is that in that 60s music scene, that's when uh, my dad was playing freshman at the time, so I've, I've met Augie once, 
uh, sort of crossed paths with him when I was a younger uh, young kid, but uh, he's still out there and playing, and uh, they're, they're, he's really great. And then I believe Doug Somson is uh, also a musician playing out in the world, so a lot yeah, of Texas they, legacy there. Actually, Doug Somson is now part of the reformed uh, Texas Tornadoes oh. with uh, Flacco Jimenez, Augie Myers, and I believe uh, a relative of Freddie Fender. Well, I'll say this. You cannot beat... Uh, you cannot beat the Sir Douglas Quintet. And the funny thing about them to me is is that we'll... Oh, this is Texas rock. So I think, you know, a lot of people know this that are Texas, especially South Texas of a certain era. But, you know, if you just heard it on the radio, you'd think, what's this uh, 60s, 60s rock sound yeah. I'm hearing? Well, and go back to YouTube and watch some of the videos from like American Bandstand or from... I think they play the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, with this song, but, um, you know, you got these kids that are, you know, dressed in, uh, you know, uh, mod British suits and they've got mop tops and sunglasses on. But, uh, as soon as, uh, as soon as Doug Som opens his mouth and actually talks, he's not English at all. He's, he's from, you know, he's clearly from Texas and <laughs> half, the, half the band is Hispanic. And it's like, these guys are not English at all. They're, they're not no way. Well, nothing wrong but, with that. It's a great song. It is a great song. And Mendocino yes. is is a very different sound than uh, She's About to Move Her. It's much more, uh, uh, it's much more country, folky, uh, but it's really, really a good song, too. No, I mean, I, this one was completely fresh to me. So, um, yeah, I, I would not have pegged that as a, this is a Texas group. Um, yeah. Five. All right. Number five. Don Dirty Henry. Laundry. Dirty Laundry. Now, Don Henley is best known as one of the members of the Eagles, which is a band that I hate. Um, he sang <laughs> and played drums and guitar with the Eagles throughout the 1970s. And the Eagles are most prominently considered a California band, especially because they had that song, Hotel California. But actually, he was born in the East Texas town of Gilmer and raised in Linden. He graduated from high school there in 1965, and he first attended Stephen F. Austin and then North Texas State University in Denton. Before he left school to take care of his dying father. Now, he played in his high school band as a percussionist, and later he played in local bands until he had a chance meeting with Kenny Rogers in 1969, which led to a move to L.A. There, he met a session background singer and guitarist named Glenn Fry, and they eventually became founding members of the country rock band The Eagles. Now, through the 70s, they had six albums, all of which went platinum. They had five number one hit singles, and they won four Grammys. Now, after the breakup of the band in 1980 due to internal tensions, Henley went in another direction entirely, embracing electronic sounds as well as more traditional pop stylings. As a solo artist, he had four number one hits, won two Grammy Awards for The Boys of Summer and The End of Innocence. He won two Grammy Awards for The Boys of Summer and The End of the Innocence. And the song Dirty Laundry was his first number one hit in 1982, and it says un-eagles and un-country rock as you can get. It's got a heavy driving beat. It's got a synth-pop sound. There are scathing, bitter lyrics about press and the price of fame. Now, and he had a lot of experience with that because of some recent scandals that he'd had to go through. Now, of note to you Yacht Rock fans, the track features... Eagles bandmates John, uh, Eagles bandmates Joe Walsh and Timothy B. Schmidt, who are not yacht rockers, but it also features Toto members Steve Lukather and Jeff and Steve Procaro. 
Now, this is not Yacht Rock, though, because it's not smooth at all. Um, but it's still a really cool song. I actually like this song a lot. In the 1990s, the Eagles got back together. They recorded and toured together on and off for another 20 years, and they made a gob ton of money before Glenn Fry passed away last year. But Don Henningly still records and still uh, tours as on him, on his own. Yeah, I remember this song, and uh, yeah, it's it's very different than the Eagles. It's a very 80s song. Yes, yeah, it's, it's super got 80s. a very 80s sound. Yeah. I am going to, much like when Sean says he likes to eat the burnt, terrible ends of brisket, I'm going to disagree with you, Sean. This is not a good song. This is not a good song at all. He is from Gilmer. He is from Gilmer, although he was raised dangerously close to both Arkansas and Louisiana in Linden. So he is... Danger close. He's danger close. He's he's almost tangentially not Texan. Um, Okay. He's he's inside the border. No, I you know I mean it's uh, it's an okay song. I mean, uh, now, do you like do you like all she likes to do is dance or oh, uh, Boys boy, of Summer that's... or The End of the Innocence? Do you like those I better? I actually don't mind Boys of Summer. And End of the Innocence is just a little repetitive for my taste. But yeah. that said, I mean, you know, being popular you... and having taste are not exactly the same thing. Right. Well, that and explains you... the Eagles. And with Dirty Laundry, you can't argue against its 80s-ness. Oh, it is the most 80s. But don't that, make me relive them, okay? Thank you. But that, that second <laughs> solo is, is a is a Steve Lukather solo, for sure. I, like I said, I, it's, it's not my cup of tea. I, I, do, I do appreciate aspects of the song. I, I appreciate the song. But I'm just like, eh. Well, well the nice thing about Don Henley is he did, he did move back with his family to uh, Dallas, where he lives today. And I maintain that when I was in college working at the video store Cox Video in Richardson, Texas, that I did see Don Henley come in to rent a video with his <laughs> kids. So I'm going to maintain that to my death. I, was I it, maintain it with Don Henley. Was All it right. Reuben and Ed? I don't know. It was Don Henley. Oh, no, no, the movie, no, no. It wasn't Reuben and Ed. That would have been awesome if Don Henley had rented Reuben and Ed. It was Ed. probably Free Willy. <laughs> Four! So, coming in after Don Henley, at number four, we have Sly and the Family Stone with Everyday People. Sylvester Stewart was born to a large, deeply religious family in Denton, Texas. He grew up in Texas and later in the Bay Area, California, and was discovered quickly to be a musical prodigy. He initially performed in a gospel group with his siblings, and in the 50s, the family group discovered doo-wop, jazz, and rock and roll, and they changed their professional name to The Family Stone. In the 1960s, Sly was working as a DJ at a radio station and producing records when his own group made a breakthrough by combining funky R&B rhythms with psychedelic rock, laden with remarkably catchy hooks. Dance to the Music was a top 10 hit in 1968, but 1969's Stand was a huge hit, and Everyday People became a number one off that album. That year, they also performed at Woodstock, and several years later were the first band to bring Bob Marley to the United States. By the mid-70s, Sly had become increasingly erratic due to heavy drug use, and though he continued to tour sporadically and record through the mid-80s, he gradually disappeared from public life. Since 2006, he has returned to occasionally perform, but continues to maintain his enigmatic reputation and appearance. 
this song is everywhere in commercials or maybe it was just one very popular commercial and i can't get it out of my head but that for better or for worse that is what i associate this song with the most and uh, this this song is pretty much everywhere and actually this song as well as dance to the music and several other sly stone songs is literally everywhere because they are the foundation for a whole bunch of sampling used in in hip-hop and other music uh, electronic music today um his his rhythms and his beats for his songs and the the catch the the sorry the hooks are so catchy that many 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 songs should use them um and you don't even know you may not even know that you're listening to a, a hook that sly stone created back in the mid 60s late 60s um, this song to me represents uh, really like kind of the it, it does more than anything else represents the the hippie movement uh, and the 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 60s music scene in how inclusive it was and how big it was because this is R&B combined with psychedelic rock combined with doo-wop uh, and and rock and roll and this band was a big huge multicultural band uh, and Sly Stone was just such a powerful presence. And so, you know, to me, I just think, you know, I think the 60s when I see, when I hear this song. Oh, this is like an incredible song. I mean, all but all the Sly stuff is great. Like the whole yeah. library, whole catalog. Can't go wrong with them. Um, Big time flake. Flaky he guy. went super Flaky cuckoo guy. in the last, <laughs> in the last couple of decades. He's gone super cuckoo and, yeah. and hasn't really been on too many public uh, things. But, you know, you cannot be what a transformative and important movement that he was in music and but double bonus we claim him as a texan right he was born in texas but you know it's he's he's a great example of oh wow he's from texas really uh yeah he was not raised here uh he spent his childhood here but not a lot of you know not his whole life but still like you said he's a texan number three the Butthole Surfers with Pepper. Now, in some circles, and some may say that Texas is hardly known for its hardcore punk scene, but in fact, one of the most controversial and legendary hardcore bands of the 1980s is actually from deep in the heart of Texas. That band, with its famously unradio friendly name, was formed in 1981 by Gibby Hayes and Paul Leary, two friends from San Antonio's Trinity University. Hayes was the son of Jerry Haynes, who played Mr. Peppermint, the host of the decades-long-running Dallas-based daytime children's show, Peppermint Place. The band that they formed was an eclectic mix of punk, avant-garde, psychedelia, electronica, and even shock rock. Their concerts were chaotic, violent, riotous affairs, and included fire, naked dancers, and shotguns, creating a legend among the hardcore fans. By the early 90s, popular music in the form of grunge and alternative had finally caught up with the surfers, and they were listed by Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Nine Inch Nails, and other bands as profound influences. 1993's Who Was In My Room earned them some rotations on MTV, and they opened for Pearl Jam on their nationwide tour. In 1996, they finally had a surprise hit, a discordant dirge about life and death in small-town Texas. It reached 26 on the Hot 100 and number one on the alternative charts. Over the last 20 years, the band has continued to record and perform, though the touring days and decadent lunacy of their 80s height have long since over. But then we're all old. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I 
I remember uh, I did get to see them when they opened for Pearl Jam, and it was uh, pretty interesting to see their uh, their act juxtaposed against the uh, super popular uh, Pearl Jam grunge yeah. stuff. Yeah, um, I, I had never seen anyone uh, you know fire a shotgun on stage before, so that was <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was pretty shocking to see. And I, I actually kind of knew that was coming. I have a, or one of my neighbors downstairs in college. Uh, she went to a concert, and I think it was them and Marilyn Manson, and she came in raving about Marilyn Manson, and then the, then the, the surfers came out, and she said, they fired a shotgun at this. What, they fired a shotgun at you? That's crazy. But, yeah, this is a – they were a loud, noisy band. Yeah, but uh, getting back to this song in particular, um, among many others, um, this – song is woven into the fabric of my college memories um this was on the played on the radio all the time and i just it's just whenever it comes on it it, it takes me right back to that time of my life see it's funny because the name of the song pepper takes me back to that time because it was played in ubiquitous but then there was this this guy on campus that everybody called pepper pants so it's it's (laughs) that's a constant reminder of that guy yeah no, the, uh, but the, the interesting thing, there's a book that uh, recently came out about the history of the hardcore punk scene, which was which was really the American punk scene that formed in the 1980s after sort of that first wave of new wave and punk music kind of faded away. Uh, and bands like the Surfers, as well as um, Husker Du and and several other bands were uh, uh, some was the band and uh, Husker Du and Black Flag and the Germs, they were really, you know, kept the kept punk music going and, and the, the surfers were a big part of that. And, and if you go back, uh, you can go back and find, I think it's on YouTube, a uh, concert video directed by uh, a man named Preston Esquire, who is actually Alex Winters. And there's a concert video of the the, the surfers, the B-hole surfers uh, from about like 1990 or something or even before that. So go back and see if you can find that. Pretty, pretty crazy stuff. Coming in at number two is Polyphonic Spree with Reach for the Sun. Successful bands often arise from the ashes of a previous locally successful incarnation. Sometimes this transformation comes as a result of terrible tragedy. This was the case with the Denton-based band Tripping Daisy, led by lead singer Tim DeLauder. Tripping Daisy was a neo-psychedelic alternative rock band who'd been very successful in the mid-90s in the Dallas area and were making inroads into the alternative mainstream when guitarist Wes Berggren overdosed in 1999. After releasing a final Tripping Daisy album, the band broke up and a devastated DeLauder changed his musical direction in an effort to come to terms with his grief. DeLauder assembled 12 musicians, including several members of Tripping Daisy, to try to put a sound together that reflected the music he grew up with. The sound they explored combined the pop sensibility of the Beatles, the association, the fifth dimension, wings, the electric light orchestra, and the Beach Boys with the vocal stylings of Ozzy Osbourne, and combine them with the ecstatic experience of a church choir. The group that formed was the Polyphonic Spree, with 12 musicians becoming 24. They recorded their first album in 2002, but were dropped from their record contract due to the lack of sales. Then the song, Light and Day, Reach for the Sun, was featured in a joint Volkswagen and Apple iPod commercial, and all of a sudden Polyphonic Spree was everywhere. 
They've recorded several albums since then and continue to tour and perform, most prominently in their yearly Dallas holiday concert. Polyphonic Spree is um, about as different from um, Tripping Daisy as Mm -hmm. you can get in many ways. Yeah. So it was a major shift in direction there. Well, I think, too, it's like anything that is like an iPod commercial or or a Volkswagen commercial (laughs) is not... Your first thought is not Texas. I mean, there was that one... Chipotle commercial that dabbled with Willie Nelson singing a Coldplay song, but I mean, for the most part, you just don't think of, of you know. But we talked about this way back when we talked about our Deep Ellum scene, was that you know there's a lot of music that comes from Texas and there's a lot of musicians that come out of Texas. You just don't think of. It's yeah. a great scene. That, this this song was everywhere. I mean, it literally saved their career. I mean, they, their their album was put back in print. They've got more albums, they had some more, more modest hits. But this song was huge. I mean, it was in, uh, it was featured in the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It was featured in multiple videos, commercials, TV shows. Uh, it is actually noted as the number one most used song in commercials in the UK. Um, but I mean, this is a big, big hit. And it's a gorgeous song, too. It's really a beautiful song. But, I mean, I was a huge, big Tripping Daisy fan. Um, I never actually got to see them because I some, somehow managed to always miss them when they were playing in Deep Ellum. But I love their album, uh, Bill, which is just an awesome album. And the next album, which is uh, Jesus Hits Like an Atomic Bomb, which is a great album title. Um, so it was it was very sad when they broke up. But then this, this song uh, and this album you know, really did uh, pick things up. And uh, 2015, actually, they performed at the Dallas NYE uh, New Year's Eve concert, or uh, New Year's Eve celebration down in Victory Plaza. Uh, and it was really cool to see them on local television, at least. So like, I get I get frustrated because people will go like, oh, boy, like the pentatonics and all these acapella people and look, there's five people on stage and they got no instruments. And it's like, why don't we call it the polyphonic spree? Because we could have like 42 people on stage. <laughs> And a ton of instruments, like more instruments than you bring in handle, like John yeah. Williams orchestra level rock and roll. And it's it's yeah. kind of cool. It it uh, they're they're a great group, and uh, we're proud of them in Texas too. Yep. One. Number one, Paul and Paula with Hey Paula. Ray Hildebrand and Jill Jackson were two small town Texas kids who were attending Howard Payne College in Brownwood when they suddenly became the number one pop act in the country in 1962. The irony is that they were singing one of the great young love songs and they actually barely knew each other. Ray had written a song called Hey Paula, a folky call and response love song, and asked Jill, the daughter of his landlord, to come with him to a local radio station to sing it. The song was popular and they were encouraged to go to Fort Worth to record it. A local producer worked with them and they were quickly signed to Mercury Records but not before changing their name, at least of the group, to Paul and Paula to match the song. Hey Paula shot to number one and sold over two million copies in 1963. They had another top ten hit in Young Lovers and several other modestly successful singles, and they are credited with inspiring the formation of several boy-girl pairings of the mid-60s, including the wonderful Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Paul and Paula didn't last long, though. Hildebrand didn't like touring and wanted to finish school, So he quit in 1965 in the middle of a Dick Clark All-Star road tour. Now Clark actually filled in for Hildebrand for the duration of the tour. 
Jackson married their manager and had a modest solo career, and Hildebrand returned to music in the 1980s as a contemporary Christian musician. Today, Paul and Paula both live in Texas and still get together from time to time to perform their big hit for special events. Now, my story to this song, and why I'm so glad that Sean put it at number one in this week's episode of Texas Rock, is that when we did the first episode of Texas Rock, I said, where's Paul and Paula? And he goes, Paul and Paula? is like, hey, Paula, what song is that? And he listened to me and he said, like, I don't remember this song. And I said, well, perhaps you missed it for all the weeks when it was at number one in 1963. No, it's a great song. When I wasn't alive. Yeah, when you weren't alive. No, no, no. Let me let me do a correction here. I knew this song. What I said was, these guys are from Texas. I didn't know that because I knew this song because I've seen the movie Animal House. But this is why and it should be Peter number Rieger's one. Character. Peter and hence, it's number one. This is the very essence of Texas rock? Question mark. Yes. This is a great song and yes. super cool. I will concede that point. It's a it's perfect sixties rock. Yeah, Animal House. <laughs> Cannot forget the scene in Animal House with this song. Um, so I hope that today. Yet again, as we do with Christopher Cross, have blown your mind to some of the great music from Texas that non-Texans and even some casual Texans might have missed. Yeah, this song is a just a crazy story. I mean, these the, this this is how crazy the music industry was in the nineteen sixties. Hey, I wrote a that, song. <laughs> I wrote a song that could be on the radio, and six months later, I'm the number one song. I'm the number one hit in the country. I picture the scenes from that thing you do where you get picked up on the on the record tour, the 1960s record tour, and you, you go on stage and you play your one hit, and then you get off the stage and <laughs> yeah, jumping on exactly off the tour bus. That's exactly what it was. And that's, that's what exactly it was. what it was. Yeah, and that's how it was. But, man, what a, what a crazy story. Imagine just two kids from Brownwood. Brownwood. Yeah. If you find yourself in Brownwood, folks, you probably got <laughs> you lost. Won't be there long. You got lost or you're just passing through. Don't blink. <laughs> Yeah, and then he quit in the middle of it. Like, huh? Oh, he, he said, sold not two for million me. copies. I, I, I want to go back and finish school so I can be a teacher. That's that's what he said. And then, you know, the image in my mind of Dick Clark, you know, here's here's Paula, and we're going to sing Hey, Paula. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it wasn't awkward. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so what did we miss, Mike? What's what? What do you think we missed? Is there anything you can think of? Well, Sean, you know, uh, you and I are talking about it. Uh, Archie Bell and the Drills of Houston, Texas, which they say right in the song with the tighten up. But he does say Houston, Texas, right in the song. Yeah. So I don't know if that counts. I also wonder, like, you know, what qualifies as a hit? Like, there were so many. I feel bad because we were so close to so many near hits and great musicians in the 90s in that uh-huh. Dallas scene that just never got off the launch pad. Yeah. Scott, what what's your what are your thoughts on? Did we miss anything? Probably. <laughs> um, I'm. I think we've established by this point in our our podcasting career that I am not the music guy. So um, there are quite quite probably uh, very Texas rock examples that uh, we have missed. Yeah. So one last one that I know is up there somewhere. But I think people do maybe associate them with Texas a little bit. Would be Pantera, yeah, just because of their their prominence at Cowboys games and <laughs> yeah. Stars games. Well, and we do have an episode 
that will be coming later this year on Pantera themselves. So it's a it's actually a pretty interesting story and obviously a big big news story uh, several years ago uh, with the tragedy of Dimebag Daryl's death. Yeah. Um, now one thing that we haven't included on this list there's not very many country artists and and that's because I think most people maybe I have a misperception here but I think most people think. When you hear a country song, that person is either from Texas or Nashville. And it, it's sort of like <laughs> you think that you hear that rap song, that person's either from East, East Coast or West Coast. So it's like country music is either Texas or it's either country or Western. So it's either Nashville or Texas. And that's why I like to blow people's minds when I go, Buck Owens is from California. Well, he's born in yeah. Texas. Yeah, exactly. See, there he goes. That's, that's the kind of thing you got to kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's really more of the game is who's not from Texas and Nashville and country music. <laughs> yeah, Dwight Yoakam. Uh, he's not from Texas. He wears a cowboy hat. So he's from California. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I am Scotticus. Do you love this show? Yes, you do. Do you love Texas music? Yes, you do. So get out there and tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that helps us out to find people just like you. Want to support this show financially? Go visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.